Hello, I'm Zev Neuwirth and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a consumer-oriented, value-based, and humanistic system of healthcare. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Folks, it's the morning of December 31st, 2020, as we're recording this interview. It's the last day of 2020 and in the eve of the new year, 2021. Uh, given this moment, I'd like to take a bit of a contemplative mood for this dialogue, looking both retrospectively and prospectively. And I can think of very, very few physician leaders whom I'd rather have this type of dialogue with than our guest today. But before we begin, I'm going to make a request of you. If you listen to the podcast and you find value in it, I'd like you to share it with your colleagues. So very specifically, right now at this moment, I'd like you to pause the podcast and email three colleagues or a professional listserv you're on recommending that folks listen to the Creating a New Healthcare podcast. And if you can't do it now, because I know a lot of you listen while you're walking the dog or doing housework or yard work or while you're exercising, if you can't do it now, please, please promise me you'll do it when you get back to your desk. So I am so excited to introduce our guest today, uh, Dr. Roger Ray. Uh, Dr. Ray is the chief physician executive with the Chartist Group. It's a well-known, highly respected healthcare consulting group. Uh, he began his tenure there, I believe, about a year, maybe a little bit over a year ago. And Dr. Ray has over three decades of experience in healthcare, having served in a variety of leadership positions at major medical centers and health systems throughout the eastern United States. Most recently, Dr. Ray served as the executive vice president and the chief physician executive at Atrium Health, a multi-hospital system where he led a 3,000-plus member medical group and had operational oversight over numerous functions that included population health, a clinical integration network, virtual care, the entire quality and safety effort in this uh, healthcare system, as well as graduate and undergraduate medical education and research, uh, literally uh, led thousands and thousands of providers and staff and was responsible for over a $2 billion budget. Now, prior to Atrium, he also held leadership roles at a number of other hospital systems. He is, uh, was a practicing clinical neurologist and practiced for at least 15 years, as I recall. Now, in full disclosure and on a more personal note, I have to tell you that I had the distinct privilege of working closely with Dr. Ray for a number of years during his tenure at Atrium Health and before that at the Carolinas Healthcare System. And I reported directly to him for uh, much of that time. I have to say he is an incredibly thoughtful and intellectually gifted healthcare leader. I've been now at Atrium Health for nearly nine years, and I have to say uh, that Dr. Ray's legacy lives on. Uh, many of the programs he pioneered and supported are critically important and really have prepared us for this moment in healthcare as well as for the future. Uh, I also have to tell you that the clinical and administrative leadership that he hired that he trained and that he nurtured are in full bloom, doing an incredible job. There are so many people I would like to name uh, that really were part of, of his effort to create the clinical administrative leadership that we have now at Atrium Health. Uh, Roger, I just want to say before we begin, you know, you should be very proud of uh, what you did over, I think it was nearly a decade at Atrium Health, and I'm really looking forward to speaking with you and interviewing you today. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Zev. It's really great to be with you. I do want to just uh, take a minute and congratulate you for uh, all that you've accomplished in the last few years. I mean, your book is amazing. This podcast 
gives such a unique contribution to the industry. Uh, I travel around the country, uh, at least before COVID. Now I'm traveling by Zoom every day with health systems all over the place. And I just can't tell you how often when any of those physician leaders or administrative leaders learn of my connection to Atrium Health, they each ask me about, do you know Zev New Earth? What's it like to work with him? And you really deserve that feedback. So congratulations on that. And it's uh, great to talk to you today. Well, Roger, that means means a lot to me coming from you. So thank you so much. I know you're a particularly straight shooter. So I, I really, uh, I'm taking that, what you said to heart. So thank you so much. You know, I want to jump in with you here. Again, you have this unique background from, you know, clinical medicine to a variety of leadership roles to senior leadership roles in one of the largest and most progressive healthcare systems in the country, and now leading a healthcare consulting group uh, that is known for its work in strategic planning. What pearls do you believe are particularly useful at this vulnerable moment in healthcare? I'm particularly interested, as you know, in terms of reframing, what assumptions, what givens that may have worked in the past do we need to discard? Well, it's a right to the point question, as I know you're known for. I, I would say uh, several things, really. One is, my experience is we are up to the task. If we take a moment, think about it correctly and deploy around it uh, effectively. You know, my experience particularly, obviously most of it has been in physician leadership and working with and through and for physicians along the way is we can get caught up in a host of dynamics and that creates lots of clamor and some confusion and all that sort of thing. But when a really sick patient hits the ED, it is in our DNA, it is in our wiring that everything else goes away and the gravity of the situation takes over and people come together very quickly for the common good of the patient. And I believe that wiring, that part of our DNA exists in much of what we're facing today. Uh, there are plenty of serious people out there and the overall societal gravity of this moment uh, really is an opportunity for people to step into it, uh, take the issues seriously, unify around the common goals, uh, and move the needle, so to speak. And so I have a fair amount of optimism that uh, we can do that. Now, having said that, I think the barriers are substantial, right? And the challenges are substantial. This is a huge set of changes to manage. And therefore we need to become very skilled at managing big change, even if inside big complex organizations that sometimes so left to their own devices may move very slowly. We don't have a lot of time for some of these things, so we have to move much more quickly than that. Healthcare is so big and so complex, as you know, it's the land of unintended consequences. And therefore we have to be quite mindful and quite careful with the progress we make that we understand what the coexisting unintended consequences are, so to manage them appropriately. And at the end of the day, as you and I have talked about for years, it has to all be about the patient. Uh, we get tempted often to think it's about something else. It's about the industry or the profession or the business. And the further it drifts from the reality of serving the patient, and by that I mean all patients in the community, uh, then 
the more we will flounder, I think. So ultimately it's every leader's need to be able to continually drive us back to considering how's this work for patients. Roger, you mentioned this notion of unintended consequences. And I'm wondering if you have an example of that, either real that you've observed in your work around the country or a concern about that. Yeah, so I think there there are several. I'll just mention two. You know, one of that's right upon us, obviously, is for years in our efforts to become efficient and become lean and to drive out cost uh, and those sorts of things, we did lots of work around what I'll term uh, just-in-time supply chain and inventory management and that sort of thing, right? And I'm not sure that we've recognized during that time that an unintended consequence was that a huge catalytic moment like COVID-19 has been that would create real challenges about par levels of supplies and PPE and medical and other sorts of uh, uh, parts of the supply chain. And so in a very head down business way, you know, I would say when we, when we go to make things efficient, we also need to consider making them safe and building some consistency in and some reliability in, even if we're hit by unexpected uh, realities. The bigger one really that about a lot these days is the nature come about because of the nature of the connection with hospitals and health systems with the communities they serve. You know, these are big complex businesses and yet they exist largely for a charitable purpose to improve the health of the community. Inside that complex business, you and I know, your listeners all know, there are businesses, sub-businesses that make money and many that lose money substantially and inside the organization, there is this continuous cross subsidy to make it all work out, right, for the benefit of the community. But these are capital intensive, razor thin margin organizations. And much of the disruption that I uh, see coming at us uh, has a chance to affect only the profitable aspect of that business. And to the degree that that really chips away at or destroys some of the cross subsidy, I worry most about the community. Does a community really want and need a trauma center? Does it need a burn center? Does it need uh, uh, food solutions in food deserts around the neediest part of the communities? Communities depend on hospitals and health systems to be there. COVID-19 is you know, doubling down on that notion. I think we almost may have lost sight over the recent years how indispensable hospitals are when you're sick. There's lots of different ways that well patients can approach their care. When you're sick, you need a hospital who's well prepared to take care of you, right? And so there's this indispensable nature of the hospital as, and the health systems as part of the ecosystem and uh, the vulnerability of the cross-subsidy, I think if it really weakens our hospitals, you know, that has a chance of really impacting our communities. And that would be catastrophic. COVID has definitely demonstrated how important it is to have hospitals that are well-staffed and well-supplied and, as you're pointing out, ready 
uh, which may require some redundancy. And so it may not be the sort of just-in-time, completely lean approach that we've taken. Uh, you have a, a unique way of sort of seeing around corners and asking questions that others may not ask. What do you think are some of the major issues or challenges that that we're not talking about enough right now? And particularly, you know, I'm thinking for the future. Yeah, great question. A few things. I guess I would start with, to me, it is mission critical that all players within healthcare and particularly providers and particularly physicians develop an adaptability that wasn't necessary when you and I came along, quite frankly, as much, but driven by several different factors is absolutely necessary today. I'll just give you a couple numbers that sort of drive that for me. If you're graduating medical school this year, you need, we need, we all need, society needs for you to be up to speed, current, functioning well, and feeling good about your role in providing healthcare in the year 2050. And that is a uh, head spinning date to put out there, right? What do we really know about how healthcare will be provided in the year 2050? The one thing we do know, it's gonna be a lot different than it is today. And so where you or I may have come out of a residency or training programs and across a 30 year career, maybe we needed to change some of our approach substantially two or three times along a career. These young people who are coming out today, that seems to me to be every three to five years for a whole career. And therefore, if we teach them anything during the training segment, we better be teaching them how to be adaptable based on things that are not knowable today. Another piece of that for me is just the amount of information flowing at us. Uh, there are some staggering numbers. I read a study that said the doubling time now for all known medical information, doubling time. Everything previously known in history is less than 90 days, you know? And all of that is flowing at uh, a delivery apparatus which has to be able to harness that catalog that, mine that, and present it to provider and patient at the most meaningful time to be able to use it. And so when you just look at a couple of these big pieces, which very logically, very rationally are steaming at us, you know, I more than almost any other thing think that including in everybody's uh, competencies, the ability to understand what's going on and adapt to it multiple times over a career is really going to be mission critical. You know, there's just no way around it. And that's unsettling, I know. You know, I've trained to be a neurologist, intended to be one for a whole career. That's probably just not going to be a mode going forward. The, the corollary to that then for leaders of those who would train, those who would teach, those who would inspire, those who would mentor, is to be able to demonstrate that we adapt quickly. And so young learners tend to imprint on 
the most senior of us sometimes. That's just the way that sort of works. And so I think it's a huge imperative for the senior most leaders to themselves personally model the adaptation that they hope others to be able to see and model after and embed in their you know professional life because the pace of change over the next decade is going to bear no resemblance to what it has been is my view do you come up against uh, blocks or walls or uh, cognitive biases that you know as you're talking to folks you're saying ah yeah i think i need to help this client or this leader you know, see around that corner. Are there any things that pop into mind around that sort of uh, issue? Sure, and uh, I appreciate you asking about that. And, you know, look, it's a, it's a, a large firm uh, with a proud history and very effective in sort of the breadth of healthcare. So we get uh, approached about everything from, you know, what I would say were fairly focused head down endeavors. Uh, we wanna move our virtual care forward we had substantial issues in the revenue cycle. We have partnering activity. This seems like a huge opportunity for us, you know, all the way to uh, grand scheme of things. Obviously what I'm involved in a lot has to do with as physician enterprises and provider enterprises within health systems and ecosystems have become larger and more sophisticated. What are the pearls to help to best tap the many different types of value that that enterprise can be achieving for uh, the community and for the organization. I, I would say the around the corner piece, happily to me, now I'm a bit of a lumper, not a splitter, as you know. Uh, so this is uh, some painful consolidation of some concepts, but there are only four or five things that I think are so compellingly directionally correct that each of us as leaders would want to see regular movement on all the time. To get care as effective as we need it to be, as safe as we need it to be, to substantially improve the cost of care, which is by every definition uh, too high today. What do you actually have to be doing uh, that if you didn't do, we ought to seriously challenge our thinking about. So it's not a long list for me, it is the expert adaptation of technology in all ways to include AI, as we talked about harnessing uh, information and that sort of thing. Secondly, is to innovate and reconfigure the care team. Uh, we have learned other members of the care team beyond the uh, high expertise of a physician are actually better suited or certainly well suited to do a number of things in the overall team-based care experience. And so that's critically important. I think nearly every organization that we get a chance to interact with, you know, if you quietly ask uh, the leadership, particularly the clinical leadership, but all leadership, what do you really need to happen internally in order to move things forward? They're all on a unification agenda of some sort. Uh, because of how they grew up, hospitals and health systems have sometimes been sort of holding companies of, you know, loosely affiliated uh, entities and assets and that sort of thing. But the time we're in requires marching in unison, working in a unified manner, 
uh, because there's no other way to sort of substantially uh, make progress. If you dial back earlier in my career and you just took a very good health system strategic plan, let's say, and, and looked at it, I would say maybe 10%, 15% of that strategic plan, it would be an element where you would say to yourself, boy, in order to achieve that, we got to have the doctors leading that effort, at least supporting that effort, if not leading that effort. Now, if you audit the overall strategic ambitions of health systems, that number is up to like 70%. Just what it takes to execute on these ambitions, you can't steer around physicians leading other physicians toward the ambition and actually being able to then uh, not just support, but move the health system forward. And so, you know, I think there has never been a more important time for physician leadership. And I don't just mean expertise plugged in in the right place, subject matter expertise. I don't just mean designer. I don't just mean end user. I don't just mean stakeholder or someone to be engaged or customer, but actually leading, physicians leading other physicians is, you know, both a critical factor of success and pretty differentiable uh, still right now, I would say in the, in, in the industry, those places that really have uh, structure, process, culture, goals, accomplishment, all focused on uh, physicians leading other physicians in those ambitions really have a chance to be uh, differentiating themselves uh, in their marketplaces and uh, in the industry as a whole. I completely agree with your list. First of all, I just want to say when I give talks to leaders, one of the things I, I mentioned, you know, people are wringing their hands about the, the market and uh, all the disruptors out there and the new technologies. And it's your third point, I think, that I talk a lot about as well, which is we have a, in hospital healthcare systems, integrated delivery networks, we have a, a what I call a secret power. We are that integrated system. We are engaged in the community. We are there taking care of people. And the secret power we have, which I think we don't leverage and we take for granted and we probably don't optimize to your point, is our systemness. And you can get all these, you know, technologies coming in, all this remote patient monitoring, all this virtual, all this AI. It's so critically important. And they are clearly, as you point out, enablers. Uh, and we have to adopt them. We have to figure out how to do that much better than we're doing now. Uh, and I think much faster. But all that being said, it's the systemness, which is either going to make us or break us, I think. I, th I think it is our unique uh, value proposition. And I, I just don't think we get that enough and we emphasize that enough to your point. What, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's largely true. I think, you know, as I mentioned early on, the connection of most health systems or hospitals to their community is one that just cannot be overlooked. And therefore, uh, not just are they positioned to be a big part of the solution, but they really kind of have to be part of the solution. Otherwise, the community uh, really, I think, is at risk. Um, the challenge of that is as technology moves, as innovations happen, 
as we identify ways to take care of patients better and in a better experience, but at a lower cost point and that sort of thing. Uh, systems will have to necessarily, at least partially, disrupt themselves a bit in order to stay competitive. And I don't care what the industry is, that's not easy to do, as you well know, right? Now, payment shifts toward value can help grease those skids a little bit, but uh, it, I think it's even an order of magnitude harder than that because it is, particularly when, as I said, you're sitting there with a razor thin margin and lots of people to support and the community to support and you're having uh, real considerations of disrupting a part of it because you're convinced that in the future it's going to be you know a vital organ to the system i don't underestimate how hard that is to do that is uh, that's really difficult stuff i think we're seeing it in part right now in the fits and starts around the move to virtual right uh, we know it's the direction to go we know we got to get there we don't want to get there so far in advance of the economics that we hurt ourselves, but we can't be paralyzed by that either. Along came COVID, which is a catalytic event to help move the ball forward a little bit. And now we're, you know, experiencing that some are retreating from that a bit, as will happen. That's really important to try to avoid, I think, because there's no question that. Um, the proper, not improper, proper doctor-led adaptation of virtual and other technologies, clinical discipline by clinical discipline, has to be part of our future. You know, uh, we set that course back in, gee, 2011, maybe, when you and I were working together, and uh, it's no less an imperative now than it was then. Uh, to your point, the issue of disrupting, you know, I hear you saying it's a given that we are going to have to disrupt ourselves, but at the same time, especially with, as you point out, the rage-within margins, which are even even smaller now, and the revenue hole healthcare systems are in as a result of the pandemic, you know, have you seen examples of how uh, systems can disrupt themselves? Because I do think it's it's a bit of a tug and war right now in the C-suites across the country. You know, you're going to have uh, sides that are saying, no, we got to dig ourselves in and dig down and entrench ourselves and get out of this hole and do what we've been doing, uh, just do it better and faster and bigger. And then there are other voices that are saying, no, we've got to reinvent ourselves and we've got to do it fast and smart and have a system and a way of doing it. So I'm just very curious about that whole disruption issue because I've seen it across the country. Everyone is struggling with this. Well, good question. As always, I, I, and I think, you know, the pat answer is it's a both and. Right. I think that in nearly any health system that we get a chance to work with, easily recognizable names across the country, uh, there are still substantial opportunities, particularly around unifying, driving out unnecessary variation, and positioning the provider enterprise to actually deliver value in streamlining things and cost savings and other sorts of domains. So I, I continue to believe there's money on the table still to be found to help fuel some of the future looking realities that we have to get into. But there's no doubt that 
at the end of the day, if we believe adapting a technology is what patients and consumers need and want and will value, then it better also create for us growth, not just partially disrupt the ongoing concern that we had, right? And it takes some courage to do that, but I do think in many domains because of the, uh, the good incumbent position that many systems have, uh, you know, you can turn that into growth, but it's gotta be right up front, uh, part of the raison d'etre for doing it in the first place. In our conversations and correspondence leading up to this, you talked about the notion that healthcare institutions, hospital systems don't have to be necessarily on the bleeding edge or cutting edge, but could be safely behind it. But when you see, you know, I'd like you to speak to this, when you see technologies, when you see approaches that make sense that you rapidly adopt them, is that sort of the positioning you're, you know, you would recommend or you've seen work well? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I sort of try to keep both thoughts in mind at the same time, right? F. Scott Fitzgerald says a measure of high, uh, superior intellect is if you can take two conflicting realities and keep them fully present. And uh, so th I think there are a number of those that healthcare leaders uh, sort of confront. One of them is innovation gets discussed. You know, is it necessary to create a completely new thing or can that be done some while also rapidly following good things that emerge in the industry? You know, and I think the point we've made before is that if there were a system in the country that was the very best fast following system in the country and didn't necessarily invent any of it, they might well be the best system in the country because fast following is, uh, uh, shall we say, not consistent across the industry yet. Um, so I think that that piece of it, are we fully watching what is known, what others have done? We have a reason for adopting, and if we adopt it, we take it all the way to execution. And if we don't, we say no to a lot of things, not right time, not right solution, et cetera. So uh, it's almost as though whatever position one is in, on the adoption curve, are you thoughtfully there? Or are you there and behind where you would want to be or there and a little bit out over your skis compared to where you would wanna be? It comes in different domains, obviously, and the, the march to uh, value-based payment and uh, at-risk payment and that sort of thing is one of those places where we've seen a pretty widespread across the industry in how quickly um, organizations, you know, adopt those principles and try to change things internally. Obviously, that has to be done in concert with the active marketplace that uh, that the organization is engaged in. So, I, you know, I think both are true. We get so caught up in the I want to invent something thing sometime that we miss the full opportunity of, well, we haven't really implemented much of what we actually know we should fast follow. And if we focused on that for a bit and took pride in it, 
and saw the change that that could yield, would that be a strategic advantage for us? I think right now in healthcare, it would be. Yeah, I want to ask you about maybe two or three examples diving into that notion of executing on on something we believe we should be doing and doing it really well. And, And this notion of virtual care, you really have been a pioneering leader, a thought leader, and proponent of virtual care for years. And I've heard you say, and this again is that dialectic you were talking about, that we can't just apply the technology to the current way that we do visits and you know patient encounters, that we have to really kind of reinvent a, what a visit or encounter actually means and to really gain the most out of virtual care. And I'm curious as to what does that look like for you? I think there's still a fair amount of invention to be done about that, around that, quite frankly, but I've mentioned a couple of things to you, Zev. One is, you know, since we were on that journey more than a decade or a decade now, I think one of the things we learned was uh, in different clinical disciplines, the best adaptation of the technology and of virtual experiences uh, look quite different. And I don't know that that should have been a surprise to us, but it probably was. Uh, You know, in cardiology, it creates an opportunity for you to reconfigure the care team a little bit, take an APP, embed them in a large primary care practice. So there's an on-site without travel to the big center opportunity to interact with the patient with a human while also creating on-demand ability for that APP to connect all across the different cardiac subspecialties. So you've got a whole menu of options here, not just one gatekeeper, so to speak. And also, you know, patient gets rid of a whole bunch of travel. And, you know, so it was multiply beneficial with some smart investment uh, in the right place, but that was sort of unique to where the practice of cardiovascular medicine is at this moment, which might look wildly different than using virtual care in infectious disease, let's say, where there's a real in the hospital value equation to taking very sophisticated and resources like an infectious disease doc and being able to effectively deploy them across a bigger and bigger zone by the use of virtual technology as an example. So those are a couple of ways about, you know, sort of uh, what that looks like. You know, another one that comes to mind is something that you've been, again, a a proponent of for many years, and I think you were ahead of your time, is the issue of behavioral health. Uh, This is one of the major problems in healthcare today and for sure in the future, the foreseeable future the lack of uh, behavioral health professionals, the lack of of access to good behavioral health. This was something you talked about five, seven, 10 years ago and actually enacted. So, uh, you know, could you say something about that in terms of this notion of a virtual and really changing how we think about the delivery of healthcare, not just adapting new technologies and new approaches to the way we're doing it today? Uh, Sure. So I think underneath it all, you know, there was a basic belief that if you blast up to 30,000 feet and say, our, our goal here is to improve the health of the community and knowing that over time payment would more directly shift to that than it currently is, which brings both 
an upside and a downside. The basic assertion, I think, was if you think you're going to substantially improve the health of the community without adequately addressing behavioral health, you're kidding yourself. Now, if we need to talk about that, debate that, you know, et cetera, that can go on for a while. But ultimately, I, we, I think, mostly believe that to be true. You say, okay, if that's true and it becomes not just we need to do it, but a secret sauce to our long-term success in better uh, managing the health of populations, then we need to more fully understand that and deploy against that. We had just taking out atrium, I don't want to just uh, single them out, but they, you know, we were seeing 30,000, 25, 30,000 physician office visits a day, right? To adequately deal with behavioral health, we could not possibly physically deploy behavioral health workers in all of those uh, practices and offices and MOBs and all that sort of, I mean, you just couldn't, couldn't even find enough people, let alone afford to do it that way, right? So that was an imperative that if we are going to deliver meaningful support for primary care doctors who every day are out there on the behavioral health front line, whether they like it or not, so to speak, they want to be contributing to something, but they don't want to be left hanging. And therefore, we can connect that via technology to resources and patient flows. We sort of virtualized the impact model that was created some years ago and found it to just be multiply beneficial and it's continued to grow. Now, I give all the credit for that to docs and administrators in our behavioral health domain who, you know, grab the to do. There's a huge imperative here. There's solutions to be created. Let's chase it. We'll support you. Uh, and they did. You know, they didn't just leave that on a strategic plan somewhere, but I actually turned it into who will do what by when. And therefore, what are we going to do based on our new beliefs? and have done some just incredibly smart work. I think all across, there are a number of different approaches to it, uh, but that, that basic reality of behavioral health competence, at least, uh, within an overall healthcare ecosystem is a must have, uh, particularly if you're gonna hope to measurably perform population level. Yeah, no, that's great. Another area which I know you've spent some time thinking about, and I'm, I'm curious uh, now, especially as you've had the opportunity to spend time, as you said, Zoom around the country, speaking to leaders of hospital systems and healthcare systems, where does the issue of the social determinants of health, the issue of racism in healthcare and the disparities of care, which I know you've been concerned about for quite some time, I know that firsthand, where does that figure into uh, leadership and the C-suites across the country? How are they seeing that as part of their strategy? Well, it's a great question, Zev. I think I would have a couple things to say about the disparities that exist in our communities. One is, I think it's safe, particularly in systems and hospitals, to assume good intent. And when you get a chance to talk to people deeply about uh, how they think about it and how they worry about it and what they do, et cetera. The intentions are always good or almost always good. So I, I really don't feel like 
I don't see much, much of a mismatch around that. But I think what we've learned again and again and again in medicine and in healthcare is good intentions aren't enough. We learned it in the original quality endeavors when we got pointed out to us that we were proud of what we were doing, but quality was not nearly so measurably good as patients and communities deserve. We learned it again with patient safety. We are learning it every day as it relates to the cost of care that we are providing. And we have learned it in a most important way as it relates to the disparities of care. And as a physician leader, as a healthcare leader, each of those issues, you know, they should have been our issues. We shouldn't have had to have others come grab us by the lapel and say, hey, you know, you got a problem here. And it has always bothered me a bit, regardless of the wave of, okay, now that we know, we know we got to take this seriously, we got to move the needle, that we didn't own some of those uh, issues earlier than we wound up owning them. But I think the disparities that exist in spite of good intentions is a national embarrassment and should be one of the driving forces of, at least at the government level, at the regulatory level, of hedging on as disruption occurs, are we advancing the ball or are we taking steps backwards? So, you know, nonprofit health systems are pretty well known and they have mission obligations, community ties, et cetera, but there's an awful lot of players meaningful players in the healthcare ecosystem today that don't necessarily have that wiring and have motivations and competencies and all that are very different than that. And so if I were in government trying to keep a constant marker on, is this smart progress for our society or just pieces of disruption that are eating away at our ability to actually provide healthcare for the society. I would keep a watch on uh, whether with any maneuver or any sector, we're really making things better with uh, our outcome disparities or not. And almost require that they do uh, because um, that's not gonna get done with good intentions. Unfortunately, it's gotta be uh, attached to hardwired, clear, motivation and incentive because that's you know that's just the reality that we're living in so everybody's thinking about it everybody's talking about it i think intentions are good continuing to seek uh, search out and seek those who are thoughtfully moving the needle and how they accomplish that and how that can be uh, embraced and adopted is a good part of the discussion but i think it's uh, it's critically important and we're uh, we're nowhere close to being there yet. That's great. Thank you so much for sharing that. I want you to help some some of this up today. Here's a question I posed to most of my guests over the past few months. It's uh, I call it the Oval Office question. So it's now January 20th or 21st, about three weeks from now, uh, 2021. You have been given a few minutes in the Oval Office with uh, President Joe Biden and Vice President uh, Kamala Harris, what specific recommendations, what two or three big ticket items 
would you uh, ask them for or recommend in terms of strategies and policies uh, that we should be pursuing to really uh, transform healthcare delivery in the U.S. and perhaps, as you said before, to help grease the skids uh, so that we can move forward in the way we'd like to? Yeah, great question. Um, I guess two things come to mind, one of uh, which is this sort of, you know, for people with your and my histories, maybe a little bit of stating the obvious, but we can get so caught up in the healthcare business world, you know, in policy and data and models and the sub-businesses and all that sort of thing, that we can lose the fact at the base of it, this is people taking care of people. And the great vast majority of healthcare professionals, you know, do it because they have an earnest desire to make a difference in people's lives and they do it sacrificially and they do it with impact and they do it with their heart and heroic things semi-miraculous things go on everywhere in this country every day based purely on the will and heart of the healthcare professional. And that's awful easy to get lost in all the rest of the, you know, it's a sixth of the economy and dollars and data swirling around and it shouldn't be lost. Um, there's a human piece underneath it that we can't and shouldn't uh, discount. And they have the microphone to be able to make those connections are really what they can be. The second I would say is, back to your earlier question, the issue about disparities. I think, you know, they, they are uniquely positioned to say, we need to advance in this country in a whole bunch of different ways but a requirement for us is we're also advancing on getting rid of disparities. Because if we don't do that, we have to ask ourselves the question, what are we doing? You know, jumping into the Oval Office with you, what about payment? As we move towards value-based care and payment, what do you think about that? Are we moving quickly enough? Uh, what are your thoughts about that? I would say in general, not quick enough. It needs to be continuous because there is no going back, I don't think. At the same time, you know, by interacting all across the country, we find wide variation in the ecosystems that, you know, payers and providers find themselves in. Most of them have some sort of underpinning reason why they're either as far along as they are or not quite as far as others might be. So I, I'm not, I don't think we can leap to uniformity very quickly, but we do need to adopt an always forward sort of uh, ethic to it all. You know, we're not taking a step backwards. How fast we go, how many leaps we take probably depends on a number of factors. And again, I say that to some degree because uh, you know, a lot of my focus is on, well, what's that going to result in as it relates to the community that many of these organizations serve? I, I know that you've emphasized that point a lot in our conversations, the point of context that uh, healthcare systems are not all the same and communities are not all the same. 
and you have to adapt that change uh, in a contextual way, which I think is really important. Roger, you know, it's been so fantastic to have this conversation and listen with you. And it reminds me, uh, I'm going to share something personal with uh, the audience. Uh, about, about 10 years, 10 and a half years ago, I was sitting in Boston in my car on the phone with uh, a guy named Roger Ray, thinking about uh, moving from Boston to Charlotte, North Carolina, to take a job as chief medical officer. I asked this guy, Dr. Ray, what his agenda was from a clinical perspective. And I remember distinctly uh, that, that conversation. I remember listening to you and you outlined your agenda point by point. Uh, you talked about behavioral health. You talked about the fact that physician leaders have to be leading quality and safety. That wasn't something we could foist on anyone else. You talked about disparities of care. You talked about the need to adopt technology, particularly get into virtual care to make care better. You talked about redefining the care teams. And uh, I listened so intensely to you and I thought, here's a guy I want to work with and uh, here's a place I want to work at. And it was one of the best career decisions of my, of my life. So I just want to thank you. This conversation took me back 10 years ago to that conversation, sitting in a very different place at a very different time and uh, just as meaningful, if not more so. So I just want to thank you, Roger. Sure things, Evan. Uh, uh, right back at you. You know of the impact you've had on me, on the organizations we've both been a part of, and also on uh, the industry. So thanks for what you do, man. Yeah, well, thank you. And Roger, as I do every episode, I'd like to conclude by thanking all of the folks out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients, or those of you who are supporting those who are taking care of patients. I and we truly appreciate you for what you do. Recognize how critically important your work is to individuals, to families, as Dr. Ray was saying, to communities uh, and our society. This is Zeb Newworth on Creating New Healthcare. Uh, my friends, until next time, be safe and be well.